Hello and welcome to Killing Time, a podcast about conflicts and battles that have bent the arc of history. I'm your host, Chip Wagar. Thanks for joining me for this military history podcast series. Today we're going to talk about a battle and a war that few of you listening to this podcast will know or ever have heard of. The Battle of Solferino that was fought on June 26, 1859. It is one of the most important battles of the mid-19th century in Europe, however. It has gone down in history as the battle that inspired the creation of the International Red Cross by Swiss businessman Henri Durnan, who visited the battlefield strewn with some 30,000 dead, dying, or mauled in the course of a single day's combat. And we'll talk more about that later. It also inspired and led to the first of the so-called Geneva Conventions that attempted to regulate the conduct of war and provide for merciful treatment of wounded combatants on the battlefield during and after such battles. As such, the Battle of Solferino has a place in history for these reasons alone, although Few people would know or remember the name of this battle, let alone the reasons it was fought, the war it was fought in, or even who the combatants were. If you're Italian or of Italian heritage, or interested in modern Italian history, you may be one of the few who knows that the Battle of Solferino was the most important, pivotal battle in the four wars of Italian independence. Italy would probably not be a united independent country for many decades after this battle. Perhaps never had the Italians and their French allies who fought that day been defeated at this battle, as well they could have been. Solferino ushered in a new era in European history in June 1859, ending the Metternich system that had sought to stabilize Europe after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815. The Second War of of Italian Independence in 1859 would signal the final collapse of the old order and the beginning of a free-for-all among the great powers that would end in the First World War. Italy was not a great power in 1815. Instead, it was a collection of states that were the object of two competing empires, the French and the Austrian, to possess and control. Napoleon had extended French control over most of Italy during his reign, becoming king of Italy at the height of his power, as well as emperor of the French. With Napoleon's defeat, the fate of Italy depended upon the decision of the great powers 
at the Congress of Vienna. One thing was certain, France would be excluded completely from Italy, including Savoy and Nice, which were inhabited mainly by French-speaking people. These two pieces had historically been part of the Genoese city-state and were now given to the independent kingdom of Piedmont-Sardinia. Remember that name, because it is Piedmont that will eventually rise to unite Italy many decades later. It was Austria who emerged from the Congress as the power that would control Italy. Austria was given Venice outright, or the province of Venetia, which included significant and lucrative territory that the old Republic of Venice had ruled for centuries, such as Verona. Austria was also given Lombardy and Tuscany outright, which included the most important city in northern Italy, Milan. Lombardy and Tuscany, combined with Venetia, gave the Austrian Habsburg monarchy the wealthiest, most agriculturally cultivated lands in Italy. Austria's power was further augmented because its dynasty, the Habsburgs, were also uh, returned other smaller states such as Parma and Moderna, which were subordinate vassals of and loyal to the Austrian emperor, usually ruled by nephews, uncles, or grandparents of the Austrian emperor in Vienna. The rest of Italy was divided among three other powers. The northern borderland, the kingdom of Piedmont-Sardinia, lying between the Austrians and France, was given to the house of Savoy, who had been the rulers of the island of Sardinia. Piedmont-Sardinia's capital was Turin, or Torino in Italian, and included the major seaport of Genoa, and Liguria, today the Italian Riviera. The area around Rome, Lazio, Umbria, and so on, was given to the Pope to rule directly as a virtual king. The remaining territory in the south, including Sicily, was given to an offshoot of the Spanish-French Bourbon dynasty, the Kingdom of Naples. The Austrian Empire that had emerged as a united monarchical state during the Napoleonic Wars in 1803 would be the adversary in this war. On paper, the odds were insurmountable that the comparatively small kingdom of Piedmont-Sardinia could, in the foreseeable future, overthrow Austrian control over the richest and most populous corner of Italy. Weakened, but having weathered the revolutions of 1848, civil war in Hungary that raged another year, and an earlier invasion of Lombardy by Piedmont, Austria appeared far more powerful on paper than she really was. The Sardinian army, which had caught the Austrians at a low point when it declared war, was initially successful, occupying Milan and most of Lombardy. But a smaller, brilliantly led Austrian army under Marshal Radetzky counterattacked in due time and routed the Sardinians at Custoza. And by the way, I'm going to, you're going to hear, I'm going to generally call the army of 
Piedmont Sardinia, the Sardinians. And I'm generally going to call the territory uh, where this all takes place Piedmont. In any event, um, the Sardinians uh, were routed at Custoza. Milan was reoccupied. And Marshal Radetzky essentially dictated Austria's peace terms uh, to the king, capping off a brilliant career of his own that had begun when he was the chief of staff of the Austrian army that defeated uh, Napoleon back, way back in 1815. He was 80 years old when he commanded the army uh, in 1849. He is uh, undoubtedly one of Austria's greatest military leaders uh, in a long history that included many of them. In any event, this brought the first war of independence to an end. Victor Emmanuel's father, King Carl Albert, actually uh, abdicated uh, after that defeat. So to the monarchies and parliaments of Europe in 1858, the thought of little Piedmont Sardinia dislodging the Habsburgs from northern Italy did not even cross their minds. All but one of them, that is. And that one was Napoleon III, Emperor of France and nephew to the great Napoleon. In 1858, Napoleon III, and I'm going to refer to him in this narrative for the most part as Napoleon, but he's not the same, as you've just heard, as the original great Napoleon. The security system of Europe constructed by Metternich and the British Foreign Minister Castlereagh was designed to, and above all did, constrain France. French monarchs since then had accepted this station and kept the peace. But by the middle of the century, however, and with the rise of Napoleon III, France returned to a more aggressive policy that would ultimately lead to ruin in 1870, but that was more than a decade away in 1858. A successful war with Austria would roll back the most powerful continental European state confronting and constraining France, opening Germany and Italy to French influence. He invited the King of Piedmont and his ministers to discuss what could be done. At a secret conference at Plombier in July 1858, discussions began that ended in an alliance in January 1859. And generally the terms were that France would come to the aid of Piedmont if Piedmont was attacked by Austria and would support the kingdom's eventual annexation of Austrian Lombardy and Venetia. In return, Piedmont would cede Savoy and Nice back to France. Unaware of the secret alliance, the Austrian government allowed itself to be provoked into war with Piedmont Sardinia. The young 29-year-old Austrian emperor and his ministers ignored intelligence and diplomatic evidence suggesting that a secret Franco-Sardinian alliance had come into existence. The Austrian monarchy simply believed it could intimidate and back off little Piedmont Sardinia. 
The Sardinian Prime Minister Cavour correctly counted on Austrian contempt for his kingdom and pricked Austrian pride by having the king, Victor Emmanuel, began making public statements and speeches suggesting that the time had come once again to liberate Italians lying under the yoke of Austrian oppression. When the king mobilized the Sardinian army, Austria awakened to the seemingly inconceivable prospect of a war in Italy in a matter of days or weeks. Now, mobilizing an army was then, as it is now, an expensive prospect, and with bellicose rhetoric emanating from Piedmont and a mobilizing army, the Austrian Kaiser reacted by publicly demanding, in an ultimatum, that Piedmont demobilize at once. At this point, Cavour sprung his trap. Piedmont refused, but it did not declare war on Austria. Instead, he waited. Austria's government could not now back down in the face of little Piedmont, nor lived with the menace of a large professional army poised to invade Lombardy. Accordingly, war was declared by Austria on April 21, 1859, which immediately satisfied the terms of the Franco-Sardinian alliance. Napoleon could now appear to the world as taking up the sword to protect little Piedmont against mighty Austria, without arousing fears among the other great powers of Europe that France was returning to the aggressive course that his uncle, the great Napoleon, had pursued a half-century earlier. Britain remained neutral, as did Russia. The expectation at the outset of the war was that Austria would quickly strike Piedmont's armies a devastating blow before France could bring its army to bear. The late-arriving French would then be dealt with separately and without Sardinian help if all went well. This did not happen. Austria's army barely moved toward the Piedmontese army when the die was cast, and when it did, it was too late and pressed too cautiously by its commander, Feldmarschall Ferenc Josef Juli. Juli was the first of the two commanders in this war for the Austrians, the second being the emperor himself, Franz Josef, after the Austrian defeat at Magenta, which we'll get to in a few minutes. Juli had been the governor-general of Austrian Lombardy-Venetia since Radetzky had retired two years earlier. As a soldier, he had begun his career in 1816, the first year after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. As the son of petty gentry, his only advantage was to enter military service with a commission as a lieutenant. He made the most of it, being promoted steadily during his service in both the infantry and cavalry. In 1831, he reached colonel, and in 1838, general rank. By this war, he had been a trusted servant of the monarchy and a general for over 20 years. 
As a general, he handled the stout, but by no means nimble or efficient standing Austrian army in Lombardy, which would be reinforced by further detachments from the interior of the empire in both the short and long term. He was not a bad general, nor was he a great one. The generation of military leaders that had served the monarchy in the Napoleonic Wars, and even as late as the revolutions of 1848, like Radetzky, with all their experience, had largely died. None would be involved in this battle on either side. Instead, a new generation of commanders had arisen, who had not seen action nor commanded at the operational or strategic level for most or all of their careers. Uli was one of these. This is the last European war battle, by the way, in which the monarchs of each of the combatants was personally on the battlefield and in personal command of their own armies. It never happened after this battle. Now, things had changed since Waterloo, of course. There were trains now, and these played a big role in bringing the French army into the field faster than anyone had anticipated. There was the telegraph. But the major development was the colossal size of armies, as large or larger than the very largest armies in the biggest battles of Napoleon's day. Austria's army alone was larger than the total for both sides in that battle, with more than three times the number of cannon. You get the idea. The immense size of the rival armies challenged green staff officers charged with the logistics of movement particularly at the outset of the war. Here, the Franco-Piedmont side did better, although not particularly well. The Sardinian army was, of course, already in the theater of war. In fact, the problem for them was that they were exposed to quick envelopment and annihilation between the time of the outbreak of the war on April 21st and the arrival of the French in force the Sardinians would be outnumbered by at least two or three to one by the standing Austrian army in Lombardy under Uli's command. Austrians who did make the first move, leaving Milan and Lombardy for the Piedmont capital of Torino, almost due west of Milan. Uli made the 88-kilometer distance to Vercelli, just across and on the west side of the river Sesia, exceedingly slowly as the swelling but disorganized Austrian army lurched and paused along the road. At Vercelli, he was in Piedmont, with the capital just another 77 more kilometers to go, and it was already the second week of May. But by then, 
Much of the French army was in place at Alessandria, a provincial town, nearby, when Napoleon arrived there on May 14th. By May 15th, the First and Second Corps were in place, as was the French Imperial Guard. The Franco-Sardinian army now numbered some 200,000 men, as compared to Uli's army of around 120,000. Uli has been frequently criticized in the histories of this campaign as too slow and cautious, but it would have taken an extraordinary commander to have galvanized a lightning advance by his army into Piedmont in virtually a week before heavy French reinforcements arrived. To give credit, or blame where due, the Austrian government in Vienna ought to have waited, if it intended a preemptive war, for a green light from their theater commander to declare war, rather than the other way around. The truth of the matter was that it was not so much that Uli was slow in moving his army. It was more that the French were far quicker in moving theirs. Uli had about a week, no more than that, to have marched into Piedmont and caught the Sardinian army in a decisive engagement. Truth be told, the standing army in Lombardy simply wasn't ready and wasn't ready or able to move anywhere near that fast. When it did move, it arrived too late, confronting now an army that was significantly larger than his own. Although he didn't know this at first, he suspected it, and his probing and intelligence convinced him of it very quickly. Accordingly, the second charge usually laid against him that he was too cautious is really misplaced as well. He was prudent. He was careful. Not a bad quality for a leader in his situation. Help was on the way, furthermore. Far to Uli's rear, in the east, from the area around Venice and Tyrolia, the Austrian First Army was pouring into Italy with the 1st, 2nd, and 11th Corps, their artillery and cavalry, and the Emperor himself making its way across the countryside toward Milan. Reaching and probing in Piedmont, Uli was still hesitatingly moving forward as he gathered intelligence and learned more and more each passing day about the position and strength of the French and Sardinian armies. By May 20th, the armies had their first sharp clash at Montebello, an inconclusive exchange between 8,000 French under General Foray and 25,000 Austrians under Marshal Stadion. Despite a three-to-one superiority in infantry and artillery, Stadion eventually withdrew, with some 1,300 casualties sustained to about 700 by the French, an ominous sign of what was to come. The fault was once again the slow, ponderous maneuvering of the Austrians. They were never able to bring the entire weight of their numbers to bear during the battle, suffering repeated rebuffs by the aggressive Forays division. Another clash followed between the Austrians and Sardinians at Palestro on May the 30th. 
the Sardinians, led by their king in person, with French support, took the town after crossing the Sacia River. A furious Austrian counterattack the next day was beaten off. Again, the Austrians lost some 2,000 casualties to 600 for the Allies. At this point, it was clear to Uli that Milan was the main object of a rapidly developing operational plan by Napoleon and Victor Emmanuel, and why not? It was the capital of Lombardy, and by far the largest and richest city in northern Italy, then as it is today. With what he thought would be the imminent arrival of a large Austrian army from the east that would swell his ranks to over 220,000, placing him on par with the Allies, it made no sense to him to remain in an extended position in Piedmont, and so he began to withdraw to the western outskirts of Milan, where he would dig in. The Allies closed in, crossing the Ticino at Turbino, upstream of Uli, and then the main force with Napoleon crossed at San Martino. By then, the full magnitude of the quick arrival of the French and the combined weight of the now operationally, mutually supporting Allied armies had been grasped by Uli. He had prudently retreated 50 kilometers from Vercelli to Magenta and was now much closer to his logistical base of Milan, indeed just 32 kilometers from the cathedral of Milan in the center of the city itself. The situation then on June 4th was that the Austrian army was situated between Magenta and to the west of Milan, with reinforcements and support still coming from the east, Venetia and Austria itself. Napoleon, after crossing the Ticino, was converging on Magenta from the nine o'clock position, where a large part, but by no means all, of the Austrian army was located, while Victor Emmanuel and another Franco-Sardinian army converged from the eleven o'clock position. Victory at Magenta meant that Milan would fall, but it could also have meant an encirclement of the bulk of the Austrian army, and its annihilation, which didn't happen. Napoleon III, in truth, had no military experience beyond a brief stint in the Swiss army in the 1830s. His claim to military fame was to publish a manual on artillery tactics and to be the nephew of the great Napoleon. The Bonaparte name imparted an aura of military genius that was absent in reality. He relied strongly on his general's advice and fortunately had some good ones. Nonetheless, he will make a few major decisions in this battle, uh, which turn out all right but could have led to disaster, as we'll see. Nonetheless, in another brawl at Magenta on June 4th, the Austrians were defeated again, with 4,500 casualties for the Franco-Sardinians and nearly 6,000 for the Austrians, with another 4,000 taken prisoner. Uli again opted to retreat, leaving Milan open to the invading Franco-Sardinians, who entered the city on June 8th to a warm welcome there. The Austrian Emperor Franz Josef had little more military experience, but after the sharp defeat of 
Uli at Magenta on June 4th, he exercised his prerogative and replaced Uli as commander-in-chief of his army with himself. Franz Josef, at 29 years of age, had been emperor already for 11 years, since he was 18 years old. He had begun his military education at 13, when, as heir to the throne, he was made a nominal colonel of a regiment. At 17, he was attached to Radetzky's army in Italy and participated as an officer in the First Italian War for Independence that had, as we have said, ended in defeat for the Sardinians and the Diktat of Milan. By December 2nd, 1848, his military education by Radetzky ended prematurely because he was named emperor upon the abdication of his uncle during the revolution. Nonetheless, he participated in and observed many of the military actions in Hungary in the civil war there after his accession to the throne. While the emperor always took a keen interest in military affairs in these years and for the rest of his long life, his other duties never permitted him to become a general officer of the first rank like his teacher. Nonetheless, he was just as active in the actual dispositions of his army once Uli was dismissed as Napoleon was with his. And as we'll see, Franz Josef acquitted himself decently in defeat, having pretty much given as good as he got and avoided any envelopment or destruction of his army as it withdrew from Solferino in its aftermath. After the defeat at Magenta and the loss of Milan, the Austrian army began another retreat to its historic bastion of defense in Lombardy, the so-called Quadrilateral. As the name suggests, the Quadrilateral was an area bounded by four massive fortification systems at Verona, Mantua, Peschiera, and Legnano. An enemy army entering this vast area bounded by these forts without reducing and eliminating each one along the way was in a death trap. Taking each or any one of these fortress systems down could take weeks or months, bogging down an army from advancing across the top of Italy toward Austria itself. As the emperor contemplated the situation, his generals urged a retreat completely into the quadrilateral, hoping either to lure the French into it or to refit and reorganize for a later offensive out of it. The French assumed this would be the Austrian response and continued to push east toward the quadrilateral in the following weeks, doubting that they would meet any serious Austrian resistance in the meantime. And they were right for a while. For the next three weeks, the Austrians continued east, crossing the Mincino River to the south of the most northwestern fortress city at the foot of Lake Garda, Peschiera. The French and Sardinian armies followed a day or two's march behind. The Battle of Solferino would result from a surprise countermarch by the Austrians after crossing the Mincino to the west. The Austrians had camped around the village of Solferino 
and to the north and south, high ground in an area of rolling hills, farms, vineyards, and small villages, as it is today. The massive Lake Garda to the north channeled any advancing army to the south of it, smack into a a line of bluffs and hills, culminating in Solferino itself, crowned by a church, a cemetery, and a smaller hill known as the Mont des Cypres, or Cypress Hill, that would become the scene of the most savage fighting of the day. The Austrians paused here to resume their countermarch early the next day. They hoped to catch the French by surprise, crossing the river Chesesi, as a matter of fact, and routing them. The Austrian maneuver was a surprise to Napoleon III, who first became aware of the presence of large numbers of Austrian formations ahead of him at seven o'clock in the morning. Wanting to see for himself, he climbed the church tower in the, in the town of Castiglione, which was where he was headquartered, and looked through his spyglass and beheld on the hilltops around Solferino and Cavriana, as well as the ground stretching away to the south, a sea of white uniforms of Austrian infantry. Now let me pause here, since I've described a little bit um, what the Austrians look like. This is one of those you know, mid-19th century European wars in which the uh, uniforms, particularly the officers' uniforms, are very colorful and theatrical uh, and make wonderful things uh, to see in movies or museums. Uh, So um, let me tell you a little bit what they look like. Uh, The distinctive thing about the French were the red pantaloons they wore, the red pants. Um, the French officer uh, infantry particularly uh, wore these blazing red f- um, uh, pants uh, with a dark navy blue tunic uh, on top. The Italians uh, tended to be dressed in pretty much... Um, navy or dark blue um, tunics and um, pants. So they were just looked dark blue for the most part. The Austrians had the other distinctive thing. Uh, Their infantry and officers uh, wore white tunics with very light blue or sky blue almost uh, pants. Um, The Austrians had been wearing white uh, since the Napoleonic Wars. That was their distinctive uh, uh, color uh, and had been for a century or centuries, whereas that uh, blue and red uh, was very distinctively French. So in any event, when Napoleon III looked through his spyglass and saw you know, tens of thousands of uh, troops with white tops and light blue trousers, he knew exactly Um, that they were Austrian for sure. In any event, a more creative and talented commander, uh, perhaps uh, his uncle, the great Napoleon, might have paused at this point to consider his options. Uh, It should have been obvious to the French emperor 
that a frontal attack, even if successful, would likely exact a bloody toll and might even prove to be a disaster. With about equal numbers and with the Austrians ensconced on very high ground with artillery and entrenched infantry, the prospect of a maneuver around the Austrian center, either to the north or to the south, threatening an envelopment, must have occurred to the French. And yet Napoleon III did no such thing. He decided to storm the Austrian position at Solferino with the idea of splitting the Austrian armies in two. sharp engagements to the north and south of Solferino. In fact, the Battle of Solferino is best described as essentially three separate battles with the most important and decisive one in the center. To the north, the Austrian right, the Austrians occupied Pozzolengo with the 8th Corps under the command of Feldmarschall Farange Benedict who would distinguish himself that day. Facing them was the entire Sardinian army under the command of Victor Emmanuel, advancing from the west. Basically, two-to-one odds numerically in favor of the Italians. To the south of Solferino, the Austrian left and the French right, was the Austrian first army under Marshal Wimpfen, with the 3rd, 9th, and 11th Corps and a division of cavalry attached, opposed by the French 3rd Corps under Conrobert and the 4th Corps under Neil, a definite about 3-2 advantage for the Austrians in this theater. In the center, the French 1st Corps under Dillier and 2nd Corps under MacMahon and the Imperial Guard and Reserve Cavalry under D'Angeli were in the center before Solferino and Cavriana, opposed by the Austrian 1st, 5th, and 7th Corps, uh, which is the Austrian 2nd Army, under the command of Count Schlicht. And here it was a slight numerical advantage to the French. In some ways, it's difficult to understand how the French could possibly have won this battle. I've actually been to the battlefield and seen the terrain around Solferino, and I'll talk about that a little more at the end of this podcast. It's about as good a place to defend as could be imagined, and just as difficult to attack approaching from the west as Napoleon III did. Aside from the very steep heights as you approach the towns of Solferino and Cavriani from the west, the area to the north where Benedict would hold forth is also punctuated by significant wide bluffs and hills, and the area to the south is likewise cut up with dips, rises, hills, and dales. Excellent territory to defend, retreat, defend, retreat, 
and murderous territory to advance and take. The edge of the steep hillside of Solferino is bordered by a virtually fortified church and courtyard with a high tower that provides an excellent 360-degree view of the entire countryside for miles around and can be seen for miles as well, and I've seen it. The church is flanked on one side by uh, the walled cemetery of San Pietro, or St. Peter, with tombs and gravestones that make for an excellent defensive position and made for one that day, once the French soldiers breathlessly scrabbled to the top of the hill. The narrow streets and stone houses of the village itself also made for excellent defensive positions to snipe and ambush approaching enemies. Austrian artillery sighted on these hills would and did have a spectacular field of fire. Cavriana, an adjoining village immediately to the south and east, was likewise a hill town, although the height of these hills was not quite as daunting as those of Solferino. So, to describe the defensive starting point uh, for the battle uh, from for the Austrians, you would imagine uh, an M tipped over on its left side with the top withdrawn end of the M as Pozzolengo jutting out like a chin would the, would be Solferino, then back in again would be Cavriana, then jutting back out again the town of Medoli. On the French side, you'd have the Sardinians in an arc, with the top half just south of Lake Garda, curving back and then forward again just north of Solferino, with Pozzolengo in the center. The French center was just west of Solferino, between that town and Castiglione, where Napoleon III's headquarters were when he learned of the presence of the Austrians dead ahead of him. The French right, with Neil and Canrobert, began the day east and just north of Medoli. The Austrians didn't miss the chance to cram troops into Solferino and in pockets on the hills immediately southeast uh, toward Cavriana, in nooks, crannies, barns, farmhouses, behind fences and ravines, making the work of rooting them out a deadly affair, as the French would find out during the day. The decision by Napoleon III to take Solferino by storm up these steep slopes seems almost insane when one stands on the edge of these slopes and looks down. So how did the Austrians lose this battle? The answer is that it all depends on what you consider a loss. The 19th century definition declared the winner the army that held the field after the battle was fought and the loser was the one who left the field. In that sense, the battle was a loss for Austria and a win for the Franco-Sardinians. But, as we shall see, this battle would not have ended the war as a decisive defeat, like Austerlitz had done in 1805, had Franz Joseph decided to fight on. Instead, what would happen over the course of the next 12 hours would be an ugly brawl that exacted enormous casualties on all sides, precipitating a tactical retreat at the end of the day by the Austrians to even more defensible territory across the Mincino in the quadrilateral. So let's talk about the battle as it developed, beginning at the at dawn, and take the battle from 
south to north. The French and Austrians advanced from opposite directions into the village of Medoli. The Austrians arrived in Medoli first, but were then engaged at around 6 a.m. by Canrobert's Third Corps, advancing from about due west, and Neal's Corps, arriving from the northwest. To Napoleon III, this was the sector of the 15-mile-across battlefront that concerned him the most, and with good reason. They were outnumbered on this front. He feared an Austrian breakthrough here, on his right flank, that would then sweep north and into the right flank or rear of his center, while it was attacking the heights of Solferino. In other words, he and his generals feared a turning or enveloping action by the Austrians, while the main thrust in the center created a vacuum behind itself into which the Austrians would pour, if successful, in driving back the French left. As it turned out, he need not have worried. Not that the fighting wasn't fierce, it was. And not that the Austrian infantry didn't fight well, they did. But the fight slowly went over to the French as the hours ticked by, despite the greater numbers and weight of the Austrian force. Why? Several reasons. One was peculiar to this sector of the battle, and the two other were more generally felt across most of the Austrian front. First, the unique cause, and this involved a mistake. Their cavalry, rightly regarded as the best in Europe, simply didn't appear on the southern front of the battlefield that day. A large mass of Austrian cavalry, Hussars and Uhlans, were grouped between the Austrian First Army in motion toward Medoli and the Austrian Second Army, or Center, that was stationary in Cavriani and Solferino, a sort of hinge point between the two. They comprised two brigades under Marshal Zetwitz. One brigade was under the command of Baron von Lauingen, a major general. Lauingen decided on his own that morning that the hilly rolling terrain around Medoli wasn't suitable for cavalry maneuvering and simply left the field at around 7 a.m., moving away from the action to the south and east. After a time, when his absence was noticed by Zetwitz, the marshal compounded the error by removing the second brigade to go in search of Lauingen denuding the entire Austrian left of its massive cavalry advantage, essentially for the whole day, while bitter fighting raged. It's probably not too far-fetched to say that had Zedvitz's reserve cavalry division remained in position and had been released at the right moment by Wimpfen, the French 3rd and 4th Corps around Medoli might have been indeed driven off, as Napoleon feared or they might have been used later in the day to swing north in behind the center, as Napoleon also feared. But it didn't happen. The second reason probably had to do with the experience of the Austrian soldiers and officers, particularly when it came to brisk maneuver and concentration of force at the critical point, the Schwerpunkt, as the Prussian general staff would call it. This war was the first major war and the first major battle against a sophisticated foreign enemy that the Austrians had fought in nearly half a century. 
The French, on the other hand, had just fought a nasty, brutal war in Crimea with Russia that had ended just a few years before, and of all the combatants, had performed the best. Many of its officers, staff, and soldiers were more experienced. The last reason was weaponry. The French had a superior rifle, the Minier, that was more accurate and had slightly longer range than the Austrian Lorenz, which was a decent but not great rifle. More importantly, the French had some rifled artillery in the arsenal, while the Austrians had only smoothbore cannon. This would have a telling effect at a critical point in the battle to take Solferino, as we shall see. In any event, the fighting in and around Medoli involved infantry and artillery ravaging one another hour after hour. Infantry on each side advanced, fired salvos into the enemy, or peppered them with defensive fire from buildings and farmhouses. Once the Austrians gave way in Medoli, they retreated, but not far, and ensconced in the next town to the east, known as Gizolo. Fighting ebbed and swayed back and forth between Medoli and Gizolo into the afternoon as fresh reinforcements arrived, first from one side and then the other, but as the day wore on, the French kept getting the better of it. In the early afternoon, Vimfen received a request from Franz Joseph to divert as much as he could of his force to attack the French center, now breaching the defenses of Solferino. At three o'clock, he sent what he could, but tied down as he was, containing the French in his sector, it was too little to make any difference. Eventually, by late afternoon, Vimfen felt he could no longer continue to hold his own position and advised the emperor he would have to retire to the east to reconsolidate his forces. Thus, for, the most of, for most of the day, the Austrian left held its own, but failed to apply the stroke that could have turned Solferino into an Austrian victory. It retired slowly and in good order toward the east maintaining contact with the Austrian center with no real pursuit by an exhausted French army to the rear. Austria's fortunes on her army's right flank would be better, but also not decisive, as we shall see. It was the center where the battle would be won and lost, and it is to the center that we now turn. In the center, Marshal Dillier's first corps initiated the assault on Solferino at around six o'clock in the morning. After four hours of severe fighting uphill, the French forced back the outlying Austrians, holding positions in advance of Solferino on the Mont de Cypre, or the Cypress Mountain. This hilltop was part of the cluster of hills on which Solferino was based and proved to be the one, one of the turning points of the battle. The French held this hill like grim death once they took it and pushed forward several batteries of their rifled artillery to take on the enemy gun emplacements around the village of Solferino and then to batter the walls of the church and cemetery which formed essentially the main bastion of defense. The Austrian 5th Corps commander, Stadion, 
in Solferino sent word to the commander of the Second Army, Count Schlick, that he expected to receive a major assault imminently at that point. And we're talking about um, 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. Schlick moved up units of the 1st and 7th Corps for close support and ordered Mensdorf's cavalry division toward the open ground on his right flank between the center and Benedict's Corps to the north to protect against any flanking action by the French from that direction. After a pounding from the Mont des Cipes had reduced much of the walls to rubble and bricks, the infantry assault was renewed by the French 1st Corps. Progress was slow and bloody, Ladrimiro and Foley's regiments receiving a severe pounding as they attempted to gain a toehold on the fire-belching heights. Fresh troops were then sent into the meat grinder in the form of Bazaine's 3rd Division. Napoleon watched the grim bloodbath and, to his credit, resolved to ram home the attack come hell or high water the French emperor moved forward in person to the fighting line with two divisions of Imperial Guard infantry. On the Austrian side, despite the protection offered by buildings and entrenchments, casualties were mounting with no sign of any let-up. The French continued to make ground and feed troops into the slaughter, and yet the Austrian infantry refused to yield easily taking advantage of the defensive positions the town offered even as they lost ground. By 11 o'clock, after repeated attempts to gain the Solferido Heights, much of the French First Corps was pinned down to the north of the village by Austrian infantry and artillery. Every attempt to get in close to carry the defenses with rifle fire and the bayonet was met by a murderous enfilading fire directed from the rooftops and gardens of Solferino, as well as a steady peppering from the Austrian Jäger battalions hidden among the bushes and trees that covered the approaches. Bazaine's division was heavily engaged in assaulting the cemetery. At this point, Napoleon risked all and ordered forward Camus' division of the Imperial Guard. This fresh injection of force finally tipped the scales in favor of the French. By this time, the plain below and the hillsides were covered with dead and wounded. The suffering of the wounded was made worse by the suffocating heat and humidity that blanketed the battlefield and lack of water. And I can tell you as one who... Uh, visited this site in July. The heat is in the 90 plus degrees centigrade and very humid with Lake Garda just a few miles away. Henry Dunant, the Red Cross founder, wrote a book after the battle called A Memory of Solferino and he gave a an account of this pitched battle at the top of the hill around Solferino. Quote, Austrians and allies trampled one another underfoot, slaughtered each other on a carpet of bloody corpses, smashed each other with rifle butts, crushed each other's skulls, disemboweled each other with saber and bayonet. It was butchery, a battle between wild beasts, maddened and drunk with blood. Even the wounded fought to the last breath. 
The San Pietro Cemetery, defended by two Croatian battalions, was still holding out despite the pounding of French artillery and repeated assaults by massed infantry for four hours. But by one o'clock p.m., the French were finally in control of most of Solferino. The carnage at the cemetery had been the worst. Five times the French Foreign Legion regiments fought their way into the San Pietro Cemetery only to be evicted by its Croatian defenders. Finally, legionnaires captured the place, bayoneting the defenders in madness and hatred that, it was said later, quote, left more corpses above ground in the cemetery than were buried below. We'll see the Croats again and again in Austrian history as among its most fierce fighters. They had proved to be a deadly and decisive force in the Hungarian Civil War of 1848, fighting on the side of the dynasty under Ban Jelicic against the Hungarian rebels. They would appear again in the First World War as grim defenders against the Italians again in and around Trieste, and the Istrian Peninsula, repulsing their attacks repeatedly, as they did at Solferino. Again in the Second World War and in the Balkan Wars of Independence in the 1980s, the Croats would distinguish themselves militarily as exceptional fighters. Nonetheless, the taking of the cemetery in the early afternoon was undoubtedly the final turning point of the battle, although that was not obvious at the time. This bloody and vicious struggle is the subject of almost every painting and lithograph of the battle, similar to Pickett's charge at Gettysburg, or the taking of the Pratzen Heights at Austerlitz. After this accomplishment by the French, the Austrian position became increasingly untenable, and yet the blood would run in torrents for another three or four hours. With the fall of Solferino, Cavriana and the soldiers on its heights became exposed. Foley's First Corps and the Imperial Guard attacked Cavriana from increasingly consolidated positions on Solferino's heights, while McMahon's Second Corps attacked Cassiano just west of Cavriana and then Monte Fontana, adjacent to Cavriana kind of like uh, what um, the, the Cypress Mountain, um, Cypress Hill was to Solferino, Monte Fontana was to Cavriana, a hill just in front of the uh, main positions. French artillery was then wheeled up onto the heights of Monte Fontana, just as it had been on the um, heights of the Cypress Hill. A desperate counterattack on Monte Fontana then ensued at around two o'clock with two Austrian brigades thrown into the fray. 
but they too were beaten off when in the nick of time a brigade from the French Imperial Guard arrived to reinforce the French. The Austrians were driven back into Cavriana. The Cavriana Ridge now came under rapid and intense artillery fire from the French, including from Napoleon's guard artillery. As described by Patrick Turnbull in his account, Solferino, The Birth of a Nation, it went something like this, and I quote, The effect on the defenders proved devastating. In the crowded conditions that prevailed in and around the village, every shot and shell from the French guns, even if they did not strike the enemy directly, caused casualties from showers of stones and jagged splinters of wood that flew through the air in all directions. Walls collapsed, and the roofs of buildings caved in, reducing the whole village to rubble, with clouds of thick dust and smoke blotting out the sun. Small wonder, then, that when the French infantry advanced, they were met by little resistance, while the Austrians fell back in great disorder, some units even bolting back as far as the Mincio uh, bridges. As late as five o'clock... In the evening, the Austrian Kaiser and commanders had considered counterattacking Solferino, but when news arrived from Wimpfen that he was being forced to retire, Franz Joseph and his commanders agreed that all hope of salvaging a victory on this day at this place was gone. Franz Joseph and his generals, however, managed a very careful and orderly retreat, one of the most difficult military maneuvers to accomplish. Franz Joseph instructed Schlick to place a strong retaining force between Cavriana and Volta to cover the retreat of his other corps. Nonetheless, no history of the Battle of Solferino would be complete without an account of the third and most northern sector of the battle where Austria had its greatest success. The Austrian right was commanded by Marshal Ferenc Benedict who went on to become the supreme commander of Austria's northern army in the ill-fated Austro-Prussian War of 1866, and one of the stars of our earlier and most popular podcast, the Battle of Königgratz. In this battle, however, he achieved stardom in the Austrian annals and the admiration of the emperor. Benedict commanded a numerically inferior force of roughly 21,300 men and 1,700 horse, compared to the entire Sardinian army of about 50,000 opposing him on the Austrian right, or the Franco-Sardinian left. The Italians had five active infantry divisions and one cavalry division with 90 guns. Benedict had two active infantry divisions, one reserve division, a single cavalry regiment of hussars, and 72 guns. But like the other two Austrian formations, he had the high ground near the town of Pozzolengo and used it well. The Sardinians also began their advance around 6 a.m., but it wasn't well coordinated and tended to approach the Austrians in piecemeal fashion instead of as a concentrated force in the hours that followed. Four Austrian brigades made first contact with the enemy and in a series of counterattacks not only held their own from the hilltops but actually drove the Italians back past the village of San Martino where 
Today, a huge tower sits as a memorial to the Italian war victims, which I'll tell you more about later. Benedict cautiously ordered his forces to retreat back to their original positions, wanting to keep them compact and correctly assuming that more attacks would follow, which they did. By 8 o'clock, though, Benedict had brought up two more reserve infantry brigades and resumed the offensive, once again driving back Sardinian infantry as far as the ridges at San Martino and establishing themselves there. Victor Emmanuel then ordered a full division and an additional brigade of infantry to attack to drive the Austrians off the ridges. They arrived around 9.30 a.m. and fierce fighting broke out. At first successful in forcing a withdrawal of the Austrians, the ridge was lost again in an Austrian counterattack. There things stood for hours, a stalemate, but one in which artillery from both sides kept up a steady bombardment of each other. As the battle for the ridges of Solferino reached its climax to his left around two o'clock in the afternoon, Benedict, like Vimfen, received an urgent request from Franz Joseph and Count Schlick to attack the left wing of the assaulting French center. Like Vimfen, but outnumbered in his sector, Benedict judged he couldn't spare any troops as he watched the Sardinians approach for another assault. By three o'clock, Benedict became aware of the deteriorating situation at Solferino and began to prepare for a retreat of his own force back toward Pozzolengo, from whence he had come that morning, which would also tend to cover the retreat of the Austrians centered toward the Mincio. His detachment of four battalions to secure the roads and Pozzolengo, of course, further weakened his own position on the heights of San Martino, Yet his caution proved none too soon. The four brigades were attacked immediately on reaching the heights around Pozzolengo by the Sardinian 3rd Division under Durando. Meanwhile, two more divisions under Mollard and Cucciari attacked San Martino. Yet once again these attacks failed in their objective due to clumsy, piecemeal arrivals at the decisive point of attack. Benedict once more beat back each attack with severe casualties inflicted on the Italians. Once again, Victor Manuel had to reorganize and this time massed all four of his infantry divisions for an assault on San Martino under General Marmara. Again, they were repulsed by stubborn defensive fire from the Austrians and by five o'clock found themselves in retreat again when the great thunderstorm arrived. Benedict's 8th Corps was the last Austrian force to leave the battlefield. He received orders from Franz Joseph around 5 o'clock in the evening as the rain subsided to fall back toward the uh, Mincino, covering the retreat of Stadions and Klamgallus' Corps. As the other commanders did, he completed this last mission an orderly retreat with as much distinction as any of his actions during the day. Well past midnight, after making sure that no pursuit was forthcoming, Benedict finally crossed over the Mincino himself.
And so ended the battle itself, the Battle of Solferino, with the Austrians in retreat, and they would retreat uh, back over um, the Mincino and into the area protected by the quadrilateral. The objective of commanders in the mid-19th century, particularly um, von Molke, was to complete an envelopment, a surrounding of the enemy army, cutting off all means of retreat and compelling the complete surrender, a disastrous, annihilating defeat. This was not that. Königgratz was not that either, but this didn't even come close to a Königgratz. It was simply a withdrawal to a, an even better position. Franz Josef didn't um, have the opportunity to tour the battlefield after the battle, but Napoleon III did with his commanders. And it was indeed an awful sight. And it was the day after that Henry Dunant appeared in his carriage and saw the 30,000 dead and wounded simply, you know, in agony and in horror, uh, strewn all over the field, up the heights, um, you know, and and the village of Solferino, Cavriana, Medole, all of these places just littered with dead and dying uh, everywhere and virtually nothing uh, being done uh, to take care of them. Now, since the legacy of Solferino has everything to do with death and suffering, uh, a theme I'll return to at the end, my own personal observations of the battlefield and memorial, I want to talk a little bit about that part of uh, the battle. Let's talk numbers, first of all. Um, Casualties, meaning, again, dead or wounded and maimed uh, soldiers unable to fight or do anything anymore. On the Franco-Sardinian side, 17,191. On the Austrian side, 22,310, which actually adds up to 39,501 total casualties in this battle in a single day. Now, as for the dead, uh, actual killed that day, um, the official count on the day of the battle was for both sides 4,699 dead. To put that in context, as of September 17, 2014, 4,486 U.S. soldiers had died in Iraq since the onset of the Iraqi Freedom Operation. In other words, more were killed at Solferino in a single day than in the entire Iraqi war that the United States has participated in for several years. But that's not all, because those numbers of dead killed at Solferino were actually discovered to be quite um, minimalized by both sides. Uh, In 1870, uh, the bodies of these soldiers were exhumed uh, from the battlefield 
due to hygienic reasons, it was said, um, so often, and this happened at Waterloo and Leipzig as well, um, these rotting bodies actually decomposed and were buried so shallowly that they um, caused uh, disease and so forth. In any event, in 1870, 9,500 bodies were exhumed. That's almost, uh, well, it really is double the amount of dead bodies on the various uh, battlefields that made up the Solferino battle. Uh, In truth, um, it is now thought that uh, when you also count the soldiers who died days, weeks, months later in hospitals and so forth and weren't buried um, on the battlefield, um, that the actual number of dead killed in the Battle of Solferino was around 20,000, which would be um, something like over four or five times as many U.S. soldiers uh, as died in Iraq, again, within um, a few weeks or a month um, when all the dying uh, was done. Uh, So it, it, it is truly one of the most um, terrible uh, slaughters uh, that was seen in Europe up to that point in time by any generation um, of um, the combatants that were involved in this this, uh, terrible fight. Um, That is the memory of Solferino uh, and Um, It appalled uh, Napoleon III. He had personally never seen anything like it. Actually, nobody that day had seen anything like it. Napoleon was faced uh, with a quandary. On the one hand, uh, his allies, the Sardinians, even though they had hardly distinguished themselves uh, on the battlefield, uh, wanted to press on. Uh, at all costs, and completely eject uh, the Austrians from Italy, uh, or what was their possessions in Italy, as had been the plan from the beginning. But Napoleon III was now shaken to the core. He had just witnessed the greatest slaughter uh, of a generation, and was now contemplating exactly how it was that he would do any better the next time he met the Austrian army Uh, that was inside the quadrilateral, uh, which would be under even more unfavorable uh, circumstances than he had just dealt with here at Solferino. In the days that followed, another disturbing bit of news uh, reached his ears. The Prussians and the German Confederation were now uneasy at the news of a French victory over the Austrians in Italy and an impending uh, invasion deep into uh, the Austrian uh, possessions. And while not technically obliged to come to Austria's aid, certainly uh, if the French and the uh, Sardinians had crossed the border into Austria, they would have. So uh, Napoleon 
became aware of the fact that the Prussians were taking the preliminary steps to mobilize their army to come to Austria's aid, and with that the other members of the German Confederation uh, would soon be massing an army on the Rhine uh, on France's western border. He could expect no help from Russia, who he had just fought in the Crimean War, nor from Britain, uh, who remained stoutly neutral. On the Austrian side, there was little cause for celebration either. Uh, They had missed an opportunity to um, defeat the French at Solferino, and some of their army, particularly the left wing, had performed uh, rather badly that day, as we, as I described. That, that sector of the battle had performed very poorly. Furthermore, Austrian casualties were even greater than those of the uh, French and Sardinians. But the greatest worry uh, to the emperor was the fact that the Hungarians back at home, now seeing... Uh, a weakness and an opening, uh, were beginning to stir, and the prospect of another Hungarian uprising uh, was in play. Another revolt at home would have seriously weakened the monarchy against all comers, so Franz Josef was all too willing at that point to discuss peace terms with Emperor Napoleon when they were offered. Finally, the ambitions of the Sardinian, Piedmont Sardinia, began to alarm the French. For the first time, it seems, Napoleon began to contemplate what it would be like to have a unified Italian kingdom on his southern border instead of a fragmentary uh, Italy, and he didn't like the thought. So, on the days, uh, in, you know, in the days after the battle, actually on um, July 6th, Emperor Napoleon sent um, General Fleury to the Austrian headquarters with a letter to Emperor Napoleon proposing an armistice. On the 8th of July, an armistice for five weeks was signed between the Austrian Field Marshal Hess and Marshal Vaillant of France. On the 10th, Emperor Napoleon sent another letter requesting a personal interview uh, with the Austrian emperor. And on the following day, the two emperors met at Villa Franca, outside of Verona, where they uh, negotiated uh, an end to the war right then and there, uh, which suited them both. The terms of the Treaty of Villa Franca were not actually fulfilled on the part of the Franco-Sardinians, although they were on the part of the Austrians. Austria agreed to cede Lombardy to France with the understanding that France would in turn turn it over to uh, Piedmont. However, in return, Austria would keep Venice and the and Verona, the um, Venetia basically, that province, and the Habsburg, uh, little dukedoms of Parma, Modena, and Tuscany were to be returned to the their Habsburg uh, rulers uh, after 
the nationalist forces that had overthrown them were kicked out. Furthermore, the Sardinians were uh, not consulted, didn't participate in the uh, conference, and accepted it only under protest. In fact, um, Cavour resigned um, because rather than uh, ex- be a party to the acceptance of the terms. But once the French had left Italy, most of the terms of the treaty were not followed by, by Sardinia. And that's another story for another day uh, and would lead to the Third War of Independence also again against Austria. I'd like to just now, uh, for those of you um, who are interested and want to keep listening, I'll talk to you a little bit about um, my own visit to um, Solferino uh, in 2016. Um, I would commend it to you. Um, Lake Garda is uh, a wonderful place to stay. Uh, any of the towns along the shoreline of this beautiful lake is is really a lovely place to vacation. Uh, the battlefield at Solferino, uh, the first thing uh, that one sees is this enormous um, tower that was uh, actually built in the late 1800s uh, by the Italians in memory of their then-late king, Victor Emmanuel II. Um, When you go inside, there's a museum. There are uniforms and arms and so forth that you can see. There's an enormous statue of of, uh, Victor Emmanuel. Uh, And if you go all the way to the top, you get a great view of that most northern sector of the battlefield around San Martino, where Benedict had held his ground Uh, all day. Uh, You will get a somewhat rosier uh, account of how the battle went um, when you're there from the Italian point of view, Uh, but um, it's it's a pretty impressive uh, thing to see. If you go um, about 15 or 20 minutes drive from there, um, you can get to um, Solferino and see the, the church is still there, the churchyard, the cemetery um, are all there. Uh, and you can get a magnificent view. Also, the Red Cross uh, Memorial. Uh, there's a there's a area where that um, there's a memorial of to the foundation of the International Red Cross that is there. But you get a an an idea of the um, immense difficulty that the French had in taking this town, and and the heights and the um, the, the steepness of the hills and how they did it is almost defies and boggles uh, the imagination. But the most impressive thing of all is what's known as the ossuary. Uh, and again, this is back more toward the monument at Solferino. It's extremely moving uh, to see it. You walk down a sort of um, boulevard of uh, monuments to various regiments and uh, battalions and so forth that are that were built there by the survivors and are still uh, tended. You'll still see flowers and bouquets uh, put at the feet of these uh, memorials. Um, as you approach a little church um, at the end of the boulevard, it's very small. Um, and uh, when I was there, uh, there was one other person there with me. Um, when you walk inside, Uh, you are going to be very surprised uh, seeing, uh, as you would expect, an altar. Um, And um, the day I was there, there were some flowers and things on the altar. But what 
what really grabs you is behind the altar in an alcove are row upon row upon row of skulls. I counted approximately 500 skulls that were, are, are basically seated in the wall uh, behind the altar. There's a stairwell down and in vaults, open vaults, underneath these skulls are piles and piles of bones from uh, the soldiers who lost their lives that day on the battlefield at Solferino. And I have to tell you, I sat down in this little chapel and looked at this spectacle on the absolute ruins of war and what it really means. Uh, I looked at these skulls and thought to myself that they are the remains of young men, uh, probably 18, 19, 20, 23, 25 years old, cut down in their youth. Um, the skulls were all different from one another. Some had very good teeth, some didn't, some had obvious head wounds, uh, some didn't, some were larger than others, but they were all at one time a young man uh, that was dead. And I thought to myself as I sat there, somewhat uh, 150 years now that um, I'm a military history buff and I had come there. Uh, there was no one else at that point in the chapel with me and probably hardly anyone visits this chapel anymore. And I thought to myself, you know, most of the world not only didn't know these young men, they don't even know today anything about the battle they fought in, the war they fought in, why they fought this war. And so many of these young men just died. And I noticed on the wall four plaques, um, one in Latin, one in French, one in Italian, and one in German. And I'm going to read you the one in French because I speak French the best of the... I really don't speak much Italian and only some German. Um, it, it really touched me when I translate it. And I'll read it in French and I'll translate it for you because it really says it all. And it says in French, Au reste confondu des combattants offrez des couronnes portez des paroles piqueuses. Ennemi dans la bataille, frère dans la pays de la tombe. Ensemble, ils reposent. And the best way I can translate it uh, is this. The plaque says, The commingled remains of dead warriors. Bring your wreaths and raise your prayers. Enemies in battle, they rest in peace in the silence of the tomb, bound in brotherhood. And I cannot think of many places where I can recall the bodies or the remains of the dead soldiers who died on a battlefield to be just randomly commingled together. 
the remains that I saw there, some were Austrian, some were French, some were Italian, all commingled together. Truly, brothers in the silence of the tomb.